G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merch, the producer and host, and today is the long edit of a feature chat. The self-titled album was called Colin Wiley, and it's no surprise that Colin Wiley joins us on the line now. Colin, thanks very much for joining Radio Notes. Oh, thank you, John. In November of 2020, last year, released a cover of a Split End song. You also have a full-length album of your own. Ahead of all that is some history. An owner for like over 13, around 12, 13 years of an old church. Can you talk to us about the original, and we'll talk about the new one a little later, the Old Country Church Recording Studio? My wife and I, we had a young family at the time, and we were looking just to uh, to get out into the country. And uh, the area I, is, was known as is Abbiston Bromley Township, and it's actually uh, it's got a bit of a history for being a uh, kind of a back-to-the-lander area in the Ottawa Valley. And uh, so at, at a time, 60s and 70s, there was a lot of people uh, kind of fleeing the cities and uh, wanting to get back to the land, so to speak. So we did that. The place was just ideal acoustics as you can imagine it was like 17 foot high ceilings uh all tongue and groove a double brick insulation so it was a bit of a kiln so uh it uh, it heated itself nicely it kept itself cool nicely with a whole lot of renovations and a couple external buildings that we added to it it was a great living space and it was also an ideal recording studio so uh eventually by piecemeal i put it together and uh so formally did that for about four to five years it was difficult uh, for me to kind of scratch a living, as you can imagine, in this day and age of music that we're in, but did it, and it took a lot of work. It was great. So we recently had to sell that last year. It was just getting too much to maintain. We kind of outgrew it with a growing family, but uh, nevertheless, it was a great experience. A lot of great music was made there. Can you talk to me about the windows, though, because that was part of the renovation that you did have to take. What were they like? What did you do to them? How did you retain a sense of that 1890s history? And I, I join you today inside an 1880 workman cottage, so I know what it feels like and the upkeep that they can have. No, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, like you said, we wanted to keep the integrity of, uh, of the original, a lot of the original um, uh, work that was done. So we, uh, there is a company around here, Bonisher Valley Windows, and there is a gentleman there, uh, Hans, a German gentleman, uh, who was specialized in preserving, protecting old schoolhouses and old churches. And so we had him come in. Uh, they were custom jobs. So they more or less I'm not exactly sure the exact materials, but they uh, were able to preserve the stained glass by putting almost types of plexiglass around them on either side. A lot of things that were had to be tailored specific uh, for their own needs. So a lot of it was custom. It was expensive, but uh, it took some time, but we eventually did it. From the 1970s, it was a residence. So talk mm-hmm. to me about that and that idea of having bandmates drop on past. Did that end up eventuating as that, a bit of a hangout? Um, yeah, it always was kind of like that with just, uh, with friends and acquaintances in the area. But, um, as far as like it being, you know, intrusive with having a family and bandmates there, I had, uh, out, outbuildings where like, you know, if per- that person needed to sleep, uh, they could stay out in the, the outbuilding, which kind of hosted my mix room and my master room. I had an ISO booth in there and it was very quiet. Uh, we also, uh, turned the attic into a separate third floor, which was a bit of a quarters, uh, and again, took some work and uh, cost some money. Um, but that was also another place for uh, that was kind of 
segregated from family. So we were able to, to function uh, fairly well without, again, without being intrusive. Want to know about these drop-ins that you got and what sense of history you got from those that dropped in past? Now, if you mean like people that actually used to frequent the church when it was open, yeah, we, we, we had some, uh, some, some older folks that would come in and uh, they had gone to Sunday school there and wanted to see the place. A lot of times they were kind of impromptu and, you know, it's, it, they see a church and they figure, well, it's a church there. It's still operational. And of course, usually the doors are open to the public. So we did our best to accommodate uh, some people, especially if they're older and there's like there was a lot of nostalgia in history. Uh, you know, OK, well, come on in. We'll, we'll give you a look. And, and you never felt like, oh, people are, you know, casing the joint, so to speak. It's fairly it's a rural area. It, it's very trustworthy. People still leave their doors <laughs> unlocked around here and things. So it's uh uh, yeah, it was like stepping into the Waltons episode when we first moved there, especially because I was coming from Montreal, like not even a year before that, where, you know, you don't see the stars for the light pollution uh, and things like that. So it was really, although I was raised in the Valley, it was still a bit of a cultural adjustment moving back. And, uh, you know, people would show up with pies and things like that when we moved in. And it was very, very sweet. Big Mennonite community around here as well, too. Let's talk about the structure in the photos that I have seen of old church recording studio and there is a new one on the way there. There is a paddock and there looks like a tool shed or maybe a dunny as in a, a lavatory, a toilet. Yeah, there was a shed. It's, uh, I think the new owners took care of the shed. It needed to go. But uh, yeah, we had a shed there and it housed uh, amongst, uh, you know, a snowblower, many cats. And um, there's also, uh, well, the, yeah, there's another building there that was like, as I described, was like an outbuilding for mixing and mastering yeah. and stuff. Let's talk about you moving there because you moved from Pembroke and I think Pembroke will come into our stories later on as well. You moved there with mm-hmm. a one-year-old daughter at the time. Uh, yeah, when Pembroke, uh, we moved there and bought our first house, met my wife, Ogden. Uh, she was a, a first-year teacher uh, and uh, I was doing some supply work because they couldn't find any French teachers at that time. And uh, they figured that I was coming from Montreal, so I was fluently bilingual, which I wasn't. That's another story. So Pembroke is my hometown. Uh, moved back, bought our first house with with the thought of you know of maybe just like being a couple of years flipping the place and, and moving from there. I had spent my first eighteen years growing up in Pembroke. Uh, There's a lot of great things and a lot of good things that uh, it served me well in a lot of areas. Uh, but it was not my intention to move back for the long haul. So I, I live about uh, forty five minutes outside of Pembroke, probably closer to Ottawa now, which is our nation's capital. The four years between 1994 and 1998, very specific. I can hear the listener going, hang on. Uh, but that was the blink of the star years. Talk to me about this friendship with what I believe is called Jay-Z. Jordan Zadarazny and myself, amongst other you know, buddies in a small town. It's a small lumber town, a lumber hockey town, and played music through grade school into into high school based on some uh, demos that he had done in his basement. Uh, His parents owned a music store, so he was made available to a lot of instruments and stuff at an early age. So his place was a a hangout for a lot of uh, players. So he recorded some demos. He went to Montreal to start university. I met an individual uh, who turned out to be uh, pretty pivotal in his and our and my um, career. He shot those said demos uh, to a bunch of labels in New York. I started uh, filling in with uh, Jordan's band uh, on drums and Bing Bam Boom. It was really just a few few shows. And uh, next thing you know, we have Geffen, Minty Fresh and AM more or less in a bidding war. And it was kind of in, coming in on the, the demos were coming in like, 
as far as the type of music, we're kind of coming in on the Nirvana wave of things. Mm -hmm. And um, although I wouldn't call it necessarily a grunge band, um, I think it was more along the lines of like the Posies or the Pixies. We were loving bands like My Buddy Valentine and um, Sonic Youth and things like that. Husker Du was in that mix as well at that time? That's right. So we were big fans of like power, power punk in its more original sense, uh, not a Green Day sense, more a Husker Du sense. That was kind of like, you know, our creative milieu that we were influenced by. And then, you know, really, I think I wasn't even 20. Next thing you know, you know, we're going to New York to do demos and uh, all these wonderful places that we only, you know, can only dream of, you know, when you're 18 in a small town in Ontario. A yarn that you allegedly opened for Oasis, but before we get to that, because I'm sure that's a story within itself if you wish to share, Melissa Off Demar, who I saw yeah. performing in Hull. Now, my story about this is Hull were performing at the Thebe Theatre, which is a local council theatre. I was um, paying a lot of attention to Melissa, her quality guitar playing, and then someone called Courtney Love fell on me because she was stage diving, and to this day, I still can remember being distracted whilst looking at Melissa by this punch to the face from Courtney Love in Adelaide. Tell me that Melissa is as great as I think she is. She's always been super sweet and super nice. I'm sure just as you imagine. Yeah, has has gone out of her way and done a really a a lot of nice things and did a lot of nice things for us in those years. Jordan was playing in a band with her called Tinker with a T. And uh, so he became Blinker, the star shortly thereafter, but was always, uh, they were friends and, but, you know, was always, was always generous with her time. And you know, when she could get his backstage tickets and things like that, she would. Well, still in your teenage years, you were doing yeah. all that. You now have a daughter yeah. who's at the start of their teenage years. Do you still yes. have the same dreams and aspirations that your own child or children will have that in the future with music or whatever they want to do in life? I don't know. Um, I, you know, my daughter is uh, Georgia is her name and uh, she's super talented, has an amazing voice and plays a couple instruments. Uh, I'm not sure if she is looking for a life in the, in, in the arts as, as someone on stage per se. We talk a lot about, she's the type that you know, she's 14, but it's been a, a number of years now where she will sit there and watch the credits at the end of a film and study credits. I can see her getting into production, maybe writing. She's got a wonderful eye. And yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, she's definitely artistic and is looking at as a university route. She's looking at that as being a concentration study. Because if we match up those years, a few years later, you are performing the likes on stage of Oasis. Yeah. What was that like? It was, um, I don't think I fully grasped a lot, uh, not only that event, but a lot of things that were happening at that time. I didn't fully comprehend or grasp the, the significance of things. Like, you know, I know what's the story. The album was, was ballistic. It was kind of like a 90s Beatlemania in a way. But that show in itself was kind of disastrous to start. We show up and, you know, there was, a, I think there was pushing 20,000 people and we're a three-piece our guitarist's amp dies, it was a little Fender Twin, and dies before, you know, hours before we're supposed to go on at soundcheck. You know, I'm using a borrowed drum set. It was, we hadn't been on a stage like that because that's a whole other echelon, right? Being able to really project and fill up that much space, not only musically speaking, but in a persona, in an entertaining way. So it was baptism by fire. It was a lot of fun. 
I remember I was playing this um, retro Ludwig kit and it was Peppermint and Liam was coming on. We just finished the sound check and he just walks up and goes, Oi, mate. And he just went at the kit and, <laughs> and he really liked the drum kit. And so I was, Oh, Liam's all right. Noel uh, said hello. He grumbled something at me. I'm not sure what it was, but uh, when they went on stage, we were sure to get into their dressing room and drink most of their premium beer. The show was really cool. It was, uh, it was, it was really good. Beyond that, uh, the few hiccups at the start, of course, you know, we were thinking, be, you know, the world was coming to an end when our amp died and stuff like that, but it worked out well. And then I think the next night I saw, you know, Radiohead on the Benz tour. It was, uh, it was a really good couple of nights in Toronto, so... The act which I think may have informed you to where you are now, and we can talk this through, and that is that of the Flaming Lips. Uh, you know, I, I've heard the comparisons with this this first solo record, and uh, I, you know, that's just by proxy. I'm not exactly how that came about, but I'll tell you what, I think there was about a, two years where all I did is <laughs> pretty much listen to the Soft Bulletin, that album that, that they did in oh. Two oh three, maybe, or probably earlier than that, that Dave Friedman produced. I mean, I think I just listened to that album exclusively for a couple of years. So they got in there. I had the opportunity to open up for them also with the Blink of the Star project, very close to Oklahoma, where they're from. And um, they were they were really, really cool and characters and very, very nice. Uh, the first time they had just done their cameo on uh, 90210, and uh, at which at which point I don't know which character it was pretty cheesy said hey, I'm not into alternative music but these guys rock the house and then the flaming list went up and did their mock thing on the episode so it was kind of fun to see them there shortly thereafter and kind of make fun <laughs> of that but you know obviously great exposure for them at the time I think that was like she don't use jelly years that big single for them a little bit wilder at that time I you know there's some and uh, the drummer turned guitarist uh, was still pretty wild at that time and uh, was dating, I think, Kim Beal from Breeders, who we ran into later on in that tour. And I asked her about that, which was also a very cool, very cool story. I think you can hear my renovation starting to happen there downstairs. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, that's that's the playing list. I've always loved them. I thought um, they I guess they've had a real formative influence. You know, I haven't really listened to them in recent years, so it's kind of surprising to me, you know, when I'm out from under doing a project, you don't really have the wherewithal to really, like, consider those types of things. But definitely now, as far as the eclectic nature of my album, I can certainly hear some playing lips in there. Name dropped Kim Deal, obviously, of the Pixies, but in her own right as well. Has Kim or other artists of her generation influenced your sound? Oh, definitely. Being a child of the 90s, um, there's something about that decade. And there's something about, I think it's the summer of 93 or 94, which was a title of a Hinterland band song of mine. But particularly, I think that year, it was like Pixies, Trump Lamond, you know, Nirvana, Nevermind, Sonic Youth. Without a doubt, that decade has influenced me. But I've always been a champion of like, it. I think it's on the same level of like a 60s as far as the pop music, certainly at least a couple of years. I had the opportunity yeah, to run into people that earlier I was like a fan of and still am. But yeah, to be able to live to be amongst them as a peer was, was pretty cool. Colin Wiley is our very special guest on Radio Notes, our feature guest today here in 2021. 
back in November of last year, released a version of Six Months in a Leaky Boat, which is a split end song. Why this very song? You know, I, I wish I could tell you, it just solely based on the strength of the song. I heard it on a late night show, you know, some FM radio in Montreal. And I just, wow, I, what a great tune. And I got to file that away in the, uh, I'd love to cover that compartment. I think what also gave it some appeal at that time, a band, there was a few bands that were kind of recycling some of that early 80s, late 70s new wave. One of them was Granddaddy. I think they're on V2 Records at the time. Software Slump was, I was listening to that quite a bit. And I think that kind of like informed the accessibility of, of that track even more so. And just that the oscillating synths and stuff like that, that was, uh, that I was re- really digging on. And uh, so years later, started playing it with um, Hinterland Band at the time. There's also an Australian band called Hinterland Band. I think there was one on every continent. Anyhow, it seemed to, the crowd seemed to like it when we played it and uh, decided to, to do a recording of it. You know, unbeknownst to my gut self, I've, I've never really realized how many, uh, not necessarily New Zealand bands, but Australian bands and Australian pop culture in general has, has really influenced me. And I didn't even really know, like I grew up, my favorite band was Men at Work. Uh, when I was a kid, and my first few cassettes were Cargo and Business as Usual. And uh, gosh, a, a track I've had on my playlist, I think, for the past two or three years was uh, Shark Fin Blues by the, the Drones. Yeah. And uh, what an electric song. <laughs> Some of the best rock. The other band that comes to mind, which is neither, uh, neither Australian, New Zealand, but that of XTC. Do you have a fascination with XTC? And if so, what is that? I do. Um, I get my fascination, and I don't know if some of the purists might not like me because saying this, but is uh, is Skylarking uh, that album in particular uh, that Todd Rundgren produced? I think Andy Partridge need to let go of the reins a little bit. <laughs> I do. Do you want to go on the record as saying that? <laughs> I, you know, I just I love their pop sensibility. I find um, I find it can get a little too angular at times. I know it's, it's probably, I shouldn't be saying that, but I love their catalog, don't get me wrong, but that album in particular stands out for me. It's a little bit more accessible uh, as a pop album. Let's talk about Colin Wiley's uh, self-titled album, as I mentioned, released a, a year or two ago now. There is a gorgeous song, and I, I now understand why it sounds so gorgeous and so much intention in terms of the musicality of it. Georgia May, when did you decide to put that song considering who it may be uh, named after. It's, it's one of those little hooks that I was, you know, most guitarists have that little thing that they pick up their guitar and they, they play, you know, whenever they're sitting around at home or something like that. So it kind of came out of one of those little riffs that I was picking on. I've been played on that for years, actually, from my daughter's birth on. And so I said, well, I got to put this down and put it down six. It's got six 12 strings, lap steel, the drums were done in the old church in the main room. It's an endearing tune. I didn't really intend it for it to be on that record. It was more on the hinterland band vein of things. Did, and I'm glad I did because uh, it's, it's strange because a lot of people that tell me that they like that song or it stands out for them are younger folks, like teens and kids in their 20s, which is, I don't know why it's surprising, but it kind of is. Are you not expecting the melodic sound of that to appeal to their more... Uh, automated electronic sort of sound. Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. That's probably my own um, 
my own biases or preconceived notions about, you know, oh, those young, young kids, but uh, they seem to really like it and they have the attention for it. So yeah, it makes you think. What artist has Georgia introduced you to that you don't mind? Taylor Swift. It's nice that, you know, when, when George and I talk about music, she's like, you know, Taylor Swift, you know, she writes her own stuff, Dad, and, you know, she plays a few instruments, Dad. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Because you mentioned about that very tune, Georgia May, being recorded in the main room of the church and this idea of a wet sound. And if we can link it to the uh, 1987 record that on that chilly November night, the ensemble, the Tim's family did. Also known as the Cowboy Who's Junkies. That? The Cowboy Junkies. Oh, there we go. Because uh, they're not going to book the church as the Cowboy Junkies, are they now? <laughs> so, you know, what I what I know about that, I love the Trinity, Set, Trinity Session album. I mean, since, I was, since it came out as a kid, you know, it was just one of those albums that uh, was so unique and, um, and it's like sonically unique and unique in, in the type of music it was playing for the day. I think it came out in 86 or 87. I think just one of those things that those albums that uh, are, are timeless and uh, achieve that timelessness by God only knows. But I think it has something to do with them being live off the floor and their the methods of recording. So I read up on that. I think what they used is they had the, the live band and then they had Margot Tin in a separate room and had a PA speaker with the band. So there was the use of mic bleeding that um, w- w- is intriguing. And I'm hearing, you know, it's so funny. We've, we've surpassed in the digital age in recording. It, it, it's, it's too clean now. So, you know, we, we want all these saturation and harmonic distortions. We want the mic to bleed. There's plugins that, you know, will help you achieve what were, were old notions of recording. But now, you know, people seem to be appreciating or or are able to hear the distinction and, and get a superior type of recording or a more live feel from from just that being live. We're not always, you know, overdubbing and, and multi-tracking and, and isolating each part that it's in the bleed. There's something about capturing something in the moment that, you know, that just seems to, to be the, a lot more magic in recordings that you know, maybe we've lost in some areas. I listen to old music just about all the times, you know, 40s and 50s, any any genre, not only for the, the musicianship, but just the sonic aspects of it. It just sounds so good. Everything was recorded, you know, to, to sound great in mono, for example. And considering the church, you know, I was looking at those different recording strategies, such as using with the Trinity sessions uh, and getting invented with that. And and there is just something about a big natural room space. And that's why, you know, although a lot of studios have closed their doors, you know, there's still, you know, that's why, you know, Ocean Way exists, for example, or you know, lots of other great studios, just because there's something at Sound City, you know, yeah, there's something about rooms that just add something. What you're currently doing, Colin, is you're producing the old church recording Mark II. Now, obviously, what you need to do is get some of that greatness that you're talking about in the old and bring it into the new what benefits have you got with the new space and how you recreating what you may have learned from the older space that you had the uh what we we now know as the the 1890s sound what i trying to do is capture more in the moment and you know so often nowadays you know people want to correct things or leave it for the post right and do their editing and mixing after the fact what i've learned is record as as much as possible, uh, if and when possible, you know, a, a few players at once. 
processing it through as much analog gear as possible, bringing back an old console, which I have done. It's beautiful old Delta Soundcraft from the early 90s. Uh, the modular system had it cleaned up. Some really good preamps, some really good ribbon mics, and letting bleed happen in a good way. So just a lot of these different things that I, I have found that some of the better recordings, these things were in place and it, it matters and it, it really uh, greatly affects the, the result. Can you also give us an idea of the space as well? And maybe there's uh, musicians that wish to travel to the new space for when it is finished and maybe a little while off. And I acknowledge that as well, but talk to us about the difference that this space will have to maybe other studio spaces. And you spoke about the ribbons, obviously in the mic and, and the old analog. In a way, it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to have the ceiling and uh, as much air, to, you know, it's what's really what you're doing is you're pushing air around. So the bigger the space, you know, you got to push more space, more air around. I'm a big fan of like Rick Rubin stuff as well, too. And his is very uh, closed mic, very upfront, and it almost seems like it's come very kind of dry in a sense. So that I want to marry that with some of the more live aspects of it. So in my new place, it's kind of funny, the previous owner, he was the original owner of our, our new spot, he had a, a business that got broken into. So he installed a walk-in safe. So there's a, a few rooms and one of them, the, the walk-in safe room is being renovated into what will be my ISO booth. So it's, uh, it's kind of cool. It's, uh, it's gonna be different, all concrete. I mean, it's absolutely zero noise floor. I've, I've had a number of studios everywhere I go. I always turn, you know, a portion of my place into a studio. So uh, it's kind of fun to get creative and use um, a lot of new products in treating the rooms. Like some, there's a really cool Canadian product called Sonopan, recycled wood fibers, uh, compressed wood fibers, and it's zero toxic, completely renewable, and, uh, and it just cancels out external and internal sounds fantastically. That's what I'm doing. So right now it's, it's the ISO booth and my mix room that are being done. And then the rest of the, uh, what will be, I call it, the, I guess, the main room, drum room and some other players, uh, that'll be done throughout the year. It's got a piecemeal. It's, everything's so much more expensive now with coronavirus. You know, lumber and so forth is like doubled in price because of uh, availability piecemeal. But by the end of the year, it should be up fully functional. Stylistically, what kind of music do you, Colin, like to record? So we're not talking about the music you do on your records, but recording engineer and producer, what do you like to record? Well, honestly, I, <laughs> I, prefer, uh, I prefer my own, to tell you honestly, because I like to develop as I record. Like I'll start with an idea and expand upon it. You know, what's really informed me is having to operate outside of my comfort zone. And when recording a lot of bluegrass bands, kind of like looking back at the 50s old school style, you know, setting up a few room mics and, and having people position themselves around it. So you're almost like mixing in the moment, mm -hmm. things like that, live miking th that has uh, really captured my interest just because I've, I've had to do it. So I really appreciate a good old bluegrass fiddle band. But then again, right now I'm, I'm been picking up a lot of um, old out of date eighties, early nineties synths and keyboards because uh that's kind of the direction where I want to go with this next one. I really like acts like Tycho out of San Francisco, T-Y-C-H-O. Scotland's Boards of Canada is another electronic act that's really been on my playlist for years now. So those elements are really informing what I'm doing right now. And for my next set of songs, hopefully will come out next year. So that's what I'm really enjoying right now. I really enjoy using sampling, 
a lot of synths, a lot of Moog stuff, and then kind of blending in the, you know, I, I, I like a lot of harmony, a lot of, like a lot of vocals. So seeing, uh, marrying those two has been, uh, is, is really giving me some good results. Currently in conversation with Colin Wiley, his self-titled album was released a few years ago and recently has put out a cover of Split Ends, Six Months in a Linking Boat. But let's go back to that album and hear a little bit more about some of the tracks that are upon it. The opening self-titled record was something else. Can you talk us through the opening yeah. track and the logic of why that sits where it does? I think it's just because it, it's upbeat. It's um, It's got some levity to it. I, I like to call it my kind of like my, my Buddy Holly tune. It's got a, a bit of a, a 50s a rhythm to it. I, and that's why it was, I found it to be the most accessible for a listener. It's not too much at once. It's got a, uh, a bit of a, a nostalgic throwback. So I thought that uh, being upbeat, nostalgic, it would capture more people's ear at once. This brings us to the feature track. I'm sure you got a lot to say about this. The feature track, Can't Stop the Have Lots. That is the name of the feature track. What was the lyrical idea or what was the message you were trying to put across with this? Well, lyrically, the message is, well, it's just about everybody kind of cooling it with the greed. I think, uh, you know, just looking at society today, I think a majority of our problems are uh, based around a few people trying to um, control everything. Uh, and, and and also just for us, there's a lot of polarizing opinions, politically speaking. Hopefully, gain some better understanding or want to better understand people around them. And, and that's kind of a lyrical message. Musically speaking, I, you know, Beck, big fan of that guy's career, uh, how he can like put out a, a beautiful country album and then go EDM the next album. Like, you know, how, who is this guy? How dare you do that? Right. It's, he just breaks convention and is successful at it. I really admire that guy. And so Beck kind of informed a lot of the beat, kind of the marriage of the acoustic guitar and the big beats. You know, when I thought about it, you know, I, I, I hear a Q-tip in there. I hear a, you know, Zeppelin tune. Yeah. Let, um, sorry, let's just talk about that because as part of, I think it was part of maybe the Hinterland band or maybe it was part of this record, there is a compilation of artists that you've put on Spotify, starting off with Q-tip through to Led Zeppelin. I, I love good music regardless of its genre or its origin. I, you know, I'm not alone with that. I yeah, regardless of how things are, are dressed up, a good song is a good song. And when I say dressed up, I mean like it, how it's produced, its arrangement and stuff. I love great hip hop. I love great classic rock. When, you, when you're a musician or you do it production wise, I mean, I'm listening as a fan, but I also listen as a, you know, I'm, I'm kind of disseminating it and analyzing it. And uh, so I, that's really it. There's nothing more to it. I, I listen to a lot of music. And uh, so if I like it, it goes up on a playlist. And, one band that I like and have been introduced to by Ted Forbes, who does the Art of Photography, which a photography series. I'll, I'll let you and the listener know. I haven't mentioned this to the listener yet, but good time to mention it. Um, he does a series about photography. I, I can't take a, a photo for the life of me. Uh, but I enjoy Ted Forbes' work, and one of his favourite bands is called The Deers. Now, you actually uh, are connected with The Deers, so talk to me about that connection Oh, well, uh, it stems from, uh, from Murray. Uh, so, so shortly after I think of the star years, I, I settled in Montreal. We were always based out of there, but I was always on the road. But I settled in this corner, and my next-door neighbor was Murray. And uh, he was a struggling artist at that time, as, as we all were 
it's, it was such a strange time because on that corner, you know, Murray's beside me. And then around the corner was like Sam Roberts and Eric Ferris and, you know, went on to be the Sam Roberts band. And we we're all, you know, 20 something poor and, and struggling. And uh, I was kind of coming down from my high and Murray was just on the brink of releasing or developing the first year's record. And uh, we had the similar backgrounds, um, uh, how we were brought up. We we're, I guess we we're almost like roommates there for a while, <laughs> feeding each other and, uh, and stuff like that, you know, working a multitude of part-time jobs to, you know, to rent your rehearsal space and things like that. Flash forward, you know, uh, We've always kept in touch and so forth, and they blossomed internationally. He approached me a number of years ago saying, oh, well, Natalia and I are going to put a little imprint together for our back catalog. Uh, would you be interested in putting something out? I was just kind of a little disappointed with the Hinterland Band stuff. It was very hard to to make it go kind of from where I, my vantage point at the time. And, uh, you know, after a lot of number of conversations with him, he kind of knew where I was at, believed in it. And uh, that was like, okay, it's great to have someone like that in your corner who believed in it. And uh, so they offered to, uh, to release. Um, they had uh, uh, good resources and uh, made me available some good distribution. That was that. And I uh, put out that first album through them, you know, got a grant and a bunch of, a lot of, a lot of good things have come as a result of that. Yeah, so, you got a factor grant. That's great. Yeah, it's very cool. It's a federal grant. It really, really helped out. We're very blessed to have uh, arts organizations that are tax funded, but you know they they recognize the importance of uh, the arts in our country, and we, they put money into developing it, and uh, it shows because there's a lot of artists that have gone on to do quite well internationally, and there's uh, a lot of nice things that have been happening as a result of that album and as a result of this new single. Uh, some very cool stations that I'm uh, very pleased and shocked are, are embracing the new single, and uh, you know there's some some sync agencies have come calling, and uh, so. Uh, things are looking good. Yeah, I saw this morning you were on a playlist with The Cure, a track off the, probably Lullaby, off the Disintegration album, went, yeah, fair enough, that's pretty cool. And then Nashville Station, Lightning 100, has just got all the integrity in the world, called the track of the week there last week. I love Nashville, the Nashville scene. As far as their rock artists and a lot of uh, their studio history and things like that, and it was, anyways, I was was very, uh, very chuffed to get that acknowledgement. In the show notes, we'll uh, put a, a link to Ting Dung, which is where Natalia uh, is helping you obviously release the album, doing some great work there as well. Uh, probably chuck mm-hmm. in the Deers link. Just Some people may not know about them. They should. As I said, Ted Forbes linked me onto them. I think you mentioned you're a dog person, but uh, Natalie has uh, Stormo and Callie. Have you met Stormo and Callie? Because we're going to put their Instagram page on the show notes. Have you met Stormo and Callie? I haven't had the pleasure yet. She's got cats with top hats. <laughs> I know she's a cat fan. Uh, they got a nice spot there in Montreal. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, I haven't had the pleasure to meet her cats yet. Uh, I'm, all, I'm, like, I'm, a, I'm a new dog guy. I've been uh, principally a cat guy. Had a studio cat back in the church. Is that yeah. what you're saying for the mice? Yeah. That's right. So we have lots. Yeah. So it was it was in the country. So, I mean, you you have to have cats uh, or and or barn cats, uh, which are plenty. There's lots of feral ones. But this one little kitten stumbled onto our yard and uh, was screaming one early morning. I don't know how he survived or how he got there and took him under my wing. We already had two, uh, but we have more than enough field mice uh, for them. So uh, he was got quasi indoor outdoor and uh, was my principal companion through the many, many 
solitary hours in putting that album together. We moved and it was just strange. He came in right at the moment when I was developing that record and was, you know, in the studio a lot, not only with other people's, but my stuff in the evening. And then uh, we made the move three years later and then he just, he just left. And uh, I'm not sure where he went to. Uh, no one's heard from him, but anyways, he, he was a great, great cat. And so, uh, yeah, so I had to give him the RIP there on the video. So rest in peace then. Pop Chips and a Bar Down. Now, this one I've got about father and provincial life. Is this about the family years? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I've had to wrestle with um, kind of, you know, I love love where I live, but having been elsewhere, it's sometimes it can be uh, a little hard with when you're around people that, you know, haven't. And um, so uh, that's kind of what it's about. The title Pop Chips in a Bar was kind of like as a kid growing up in hockey town, you know, you'd, you'd ask your mom or your dad for two bucks after hockey to go to, go get a pop chip in a bar. We have a comedy show up here. and It might be syndicated in Australia called Trailer Park Boys. Uh, pop Chips in a Bar, one of the funny characters from that show, it was kind of a, a, a saying he used on an episode but a bar down is a hockey expression for a type of goal. So it's probably the coolest goal you can get. Hit the crossbar and it goes in. The whole thing is kind of an homage to living in uh, northern Ontario in a hockey community. And uh, it can be a little provincial. It's sweet, but it's also it can be tough when you've got, I guess, more artistic ambitions. And uh, so that kind of speaks to that wrestling. And I've always had to like, you know, after Blink of the Star, I had to go get a, I went and got a degree. And sometimes, you know, some years I got out, you know, I, I need a day job and uh, with uh, having kids and stuff. So it's that walking that fine line and trying to find a balance in being a good provider and a good dad and pay the bills when music isn't. And then, but also trying to, to stay uh, relevant, so, artistically speaking. So narratively, the father in this conversation, lyrically, is your good self. Yeah, it's it, it's myself. It's it's my dad. You know, it's it's lots of people's dads in a way that it's kind of like wrestling with that older notion, which is, oh, you got a good job, you keep mm. it, and you stay there for. Well, you know, while we have a kind of a mental health epidemic everywhere, why is that? You know, why are people doing things that make them miserable? You know, and it's kind of wrestling with that sort of thing. And like, you know, life is short. Is it all about, you know, uh, making sure you have a good pension? Uh, You might not make it to using that pension. It's all all those types of questions. It's kind of tongue in cheek. I try to stay humorous about it. But, you know, and I know I'm not alone with that. A lot of people have day jobs and they have dreams for doing other things. And so it's kind of like, well, it's talking about those issues. And uh, for me, who who has made that gamble a few times in life, it's a tough thing to put yourself out there. And, you know, with music and doing any type of production, you you know, you're putting in an 80 80 hour week and you're making a third what you did with the day job. And uh, it's always that it's always that balance money or artistic fulfillment. Yeah, the other thing, Colin, though, is the day job is not going to be on a record that someone can listen to in 20, 30, 100 years' time. One clarification, pop, initially I thought was as in father, but this pop, chips is chips, I get chips, unless it's like gambling. Talk us through, you've mentioned the hockey reference at the end there, that's the bar down. So what exactly is pop? So pop, well, just like a soda pop. Yeah, so it's just like kind of like going through the motions of routine, 
when I was writing that, I was thinking I, I, I do play hockey still like recreational in a beer league. So it was just like, you know, going through the motions sometimes, you know, it just feels like you're, um, you know, like people who play golf and, and, but they don't really like golf, but that's what you're supposed to do. Kind of an existential dilemma sort of thing is talking about that. The wedding is the closing track. Was that also a closing of a chapter in your life? Not in a bad way, but when you did get to the altar, it was a new phase and a closing of a certain chapter of your life. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was actually a, a parallel, not only with uh, my own marriage, but all, also in a faith way. Um, you know, the I'd mentioned earlier uh, my relationship with with Murray and, and meeting him from the Deers. Like he's he was a pastor's kid and grew up in an evangelical background, and as I was, it wasn't all bad as far as you know what I took away from it. In that, you know, the difference between. Um, religion and faith uh that faith is something that you know it, it, you come to terms with personally it's not a religious institution thing and so it was kind of like uh coming to a, a greater understanding uh, you know my life not only with my wife and and uh you know making that decision and you know she in a lot of ways is, is kind of like you know my home and, and so it's also the faith and that, you know, coming to that understanding of, okay, this is, this is what I believe. And um, it, it was kind of like a parallel of the two. But, uh, yeah, it was a hard song to put out there because it's probably the most vulnerable mm. um, for me. I, I'm never really that directly personally revealing that one was, was carrying around with me for, gosh, since I, for a number of, a couple of decades before I decided to actually finish it. Mm. You've left the church again, as in the place that you live that was a church, and you're making yeah. a new, as you said, a new home. And I, I want to acknowledge, I want to, want to put a spotlight on something you said there, and it's this, that your wife is somewhat of a home. Yeah. Family for you is that home, isn't it now? It definitely is. It's probably because, uh, you know, coming from uh, my adolescence, uh, there was there was a lot of uh, there was some there's I would say turmoil, but I didn't really have a fixed address. You know, even in my teens, uh, the parents split and one moved to a different city, one moved to the other city. And, you know, so I was with a couple of relatives shipped around for a little bit. You know, I felt like a bit of a nomad, even with the band. Then it was immediately into the band and we were nomadic, living in an Econoline for about four or five years throughout North America, uh, having, you know, an apartment changing every few months. So when I left all of that, moved back to the Ottawa Valley from Montreal and having all that, you know, those light speed years happening when I encountered my, met my partner and my wife. Yeah, that, that was the thing. It just felt hand in glove. And uh, right. It, it became, that was kind of, you know, the family that uh, in a way was taken away with me, the band that falling out with that band, you know, they, they became like a second family and, you know, being lifelong friends and, and some bad business going down, it was very affecting. Mm -hmm. And it took me, took me a while to get past all of that stuff, both my immediate biological family, the band family falling apart. And then some other things, you know, and moving home, with music, not even really wanting to continue on with it because it just, it was just a lot at that time. The timing of, yeah, meeting my future wife and then just 
feeling like, okay, this is, this is the companionship I need and want. And so, yeah, the wedding kind of reflects a lot of those moments where the, the answers kind of came. Colin, what brought you back to music then? What was that moment where music said, hi, Colin, we, we've, had, we've had a bit of a rocky road. Our relationship hasn't been great, but you need me in your life. When did music have that conversation again with you? Um, well, you know, it just never went away. I get little hooks. I think of hooks or lyrics. Um, I, you know, I always continue to play on my own time and not really thinking of it. I do little demos, I little four-tracked cassettes and things like that that I'd still tinker with. And even though I was, you know, decidedly just wanting to finish my university degree through Waterloo at that time and just get on with it and, you know, maybe have a little bit more of a provincial life. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, once I got into the career that I had studied for and so forth, I was like, this is great. It, it pays the bills. I have a title that, you know, uh, people can know me by, have that identity, but it's not really entirely myself. It was at that time where it's like, you know, this isn't a choice. This is in me. I don't have a choice in it. I have to do it. Let's talk about the other single you dropped in 2020, July of 2020. It was called Ginger Ale. It's a, it's a bit of a lust letter to my wife, who is a redhead. And I've never really made, uh, you know, a, a saucy little number <laughs> like that. You know, it was just a, a jazzy number. It was like, I, I call it uh, I, <laughs> my Ray Charles song, although... My gosh, I nowhere near Ray Charles. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, there was a, like a game show in Canada called Definition in the day. It just had a real 60s swing vibe to it. And it was just a lot of fun. You know, I wasn't even sure it was an outtake from the solo album. And, uh, but I thought, oh, it's fun enough. I'll put it out in the summer. It's uh, everybody's in lockdown. I'm going to call it your Keith Urban moment because about a year ago, Keith Urban wrote a song about Nicole Kidman, and who, who was also a redhead, and it was just a bit too personal. Now, I'm not saying your song goes to those levels, but boy, something about a redhead where you go, yeah, I do have to write a song about you, don't I? Well, it sounds like sounds to me that you, uh, you might have the same sort of, um, oh, did I lose you? I'm still here. Are you still there? Well, just we were talking about Melissa Oftemar, who's also uh, a redhead. I may have also had a crush on her in the day. Currently recording the follow-up to the self-titled Colin Wiley album called Colin Wiley. It's got this vibrant, fluorescent fuchsia pink sort of cover. It's got you in a guitar pose. Let's ask about what the new direction is. So are you doing an Americana record next? Where are we heading for this new record? Well, what I'm doing right now is all all the different songs that I have, I'm trying to compartmentalize them in genre-specific EPs. So it's either going to be another big eclectic, bigger eclectic album, or it's going to be a handful of two or three EPs. Initially, when, you know, first of mine, I really, really enjoy a lot of the new production I'm hearing from like bands like The Killers, you know, The War on Drugs, an artist named Sam Fender. They all seem to be going, I really just love that sort of, I don't want to call it 80s, um, but um, there seems to be a, just a really cool sound that I'm hearing from artists like those guys. It's something that's kind of been on my heart as well, too, as to uh, that direction. Again, I mentioned earlier that I was really trying to look at it, the instrumentation for this being more synth-laden, picking up some analog synths here and there, um, maybe less guitar and uh, a little bit more danceable, a little bit more groove-oriented. Groove I'd like to make it count. Uh, I'd like something to break. <laughs> So 
the the pension for me is like I'd like to make this well I'd like to retain a lot of good artistic integrity about it artistically interesting but I'd also like to make commercially accessible that's the balance uh, I think you can do both and I think there's a lot of great artists that do it like for example the Killers the War on Drugs live album that came out uh, this past year like holy smokes uh, those guys are so good I always get inspired when I look at them see when you started. In those teenage years and you're playing New York at places like CBGB's and, and as we mentioned, Whiskey A Go-Go, places like that, it was about the live and obviously live is out of the window for a couple of reasons, but it also is that it's changed a little. People still want live, but it, it's different to when it was then. Quite boldly, you want to be a success with it and, and that's fine. That shouldn't be criticised. Yeah. You, you should have that right. But at the same time, is that limiting you in any way? Is it driving uh, no, the process? I, uh, it, I would say it is. I think it's a big driver. It's just, it's my stage in the life. It's my stage in life, my point in life. I mean, you know, I, I love indie circles. I Sometimes I find I, I kind of wrestle with the idea of like, you know, uh, I'm going to attempt to sound lo-fi as some sort of um, indie cred or, um, or I don't know what. Uh, I want people to, to like and hear my music and I want to make a living at it so that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to have to do three or four things, you know, part-time jobs just to keep something going. Eventually, uh, you know, you, you'd like to try it again. And I've had those moments in those years where I'd be able to, you know, 100% do what it is that I, I love to do. So yeah, I'd like to, uh, to see some more of those years and to build an audience and to build a fan base and be able to, to get out there on the road again. You had the live aspect. I miss it so much. Uh, traveling, you know, wasn't uncommon to do, you know, like 28 gigs in 35 days in different cities mm. in the United States because, you know, you can have well-populated cities within three to four or five-hour drive the very next day. So it, it was possible to see so many different places, play so many different shows. Boy, does it get you good in a big hurry, like playing with a band in, in that concentrated form. And I was lucky and fortunate enough to, to be able to see that old kind of dinosaur model where they, they do develop bands. Labels did develop band. They put money into us. We got really good in a hurry. And nothing does that better than playing live. Running and cycling, how important is it for you to keep fit? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It informs, uh, you know... Um, I, I love reading. All I read is music bios and uh, documentaries. That's pretty much it as far as uh, movie watching and, and book reading. And, you know, Bob Marley, before they went into the studio, they'd always go and play some soccer. They get high and play some soccer. <laughs> Getting high and riding a bike or something like that is, uh, is the equivalent to me. And um, Sounds a little dangerous, though. You know, soccer, you're not actually being propelled through space at the time that you're high. The odd cow. No cars. It's to me, it clears the mind. Uh, it's it's super healthy. It just because of, you know production is so sedentary. It can be the sitting is just so dangerous. And I ran into not a big weight problem or anything, but I you know I got it shaped through the years where it was just concentrated studio work. You know, it affected me mentally, affected me a lot of different ways. Coming outside of that, I was like, okay, I have to be that much more conscientious of, of making sure that I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot more exercise and that much more active. It's paramount. You know, I think you can get away with it in your 20s and early 30s, but uh, it does sneak up on you. And I found that it has informed in a positive way my creativity and allowed me to be able to work longer, as a matter of fact. 
lyrically as well, does it give you that what we call headspace to actually find some lyrical ideas? May they be instrumental or actual words? Definitely. With anything that you're trying to figure out, a test or something, a mathematical equation or something, you know, if you leave it, you walk away, that's typically when you get the insight and the answer. So yeah, I make sure I parcel out my day and I make sure that, you know, I get out, shoot some hoops, ride a bike, do some weights or whatever else, or I get out and kayak, we're on the water now. So all these different things, is your brain still working? And next thing you know, I always have my phone on me to, for the voice recorder. I always like when something comes to me and those, even when I'm riding my bike, dick the phone, get the idea down that I was kind of mulling about. But exercise de- definitely does provide that headspace. You mentioned bio books and TV docos as well, but focusing on the book element, which particular bio book should we be reading or more importantly, has informed you of late? Oh, boy. I'm making my way through the story of 4AD records right now. Mm-hmm. It's very comprehensive, a little dry. Uh, they, I mean, if you're a fan of anything that label has done uh, from the Pixies on down to the Cocteau Twins and so forth, uh, it's definitely worthwhile because they get into serious detail on the artworks to everything. And so as, as documentaries, uh, boy, what's the last thing I watched was Rumble, uh, the Indians that rock the world. So it's all about, it compiles a lot of the, the heavyweight indigenous artists uh, in North America that inform popular music from Charlie Christian to, you know, Jimi Hendrix to Robbie Robertson, who of all of which are native. Colin Wiley, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for staying on the line and having a chat with Radio Notes. Oh, that was great. Thanks for having me, John. Thanks very much to our feature guest, Colin Wiley. Next time, our feature guest will be Tom of the band Oceans. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 